Hi, I'm Charlie Harp, and this is the Inframonster Podcast. And today on the Inframonster Podcast, I'm going to be talking with Stuart Meyerberg and Lori Moore about the CDC and the NCIRD group. Why don't we start if you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? Lori, why don't you go first? Hi there. My name is Lori Moore, and I'm a pharmacist by trade, and I work for CDC. I've been with CDC now for actually coming up on five years in just a few weeks. Uh, before I started in, in CDC, I actually worked with Indian Health Service and for over for close to 15 years, actually. And I've been supporting public health informatics projects uh, for most of that time. Thanks, Lori. Stuart? Hi, I'm Stuart Meyerberg. I am the informatics team lead in what is currently the Immunization Information Services Support Branch. I've been with CDC since 2010 with the same branch. And before that, I worked at Emory University School of Public Health, and I also went to undergrad and law school there. Great. Thank you guys so much. What we were hoping to do today was we're going to kind of tell a story of the process that you guys went through going through COVID and managing the vaccines and that data. But I think it'd be great to start out with you guys talking a little bit about your branch and what your branch does at the CDC. Sure, I can start that. Um, and Lori, please feel free to jump in. Um, so our branch, like I said, is currently called the Immunization Information Systems Support Branch. We um, are going through a process of reorganization with the whole division, um, and our new name will be the Informatics and Data Analytics Branch. So it will be IDAB, which is much easier to say as an acronym than um, IISSB. Uh, <laughs> So not that's the reason we picked it, but um, it, it does flow off the tongue better. And so we are part of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases. And the mission of the center is to deal with preventing disease and disability through immunization and by controlling respiratory and related diseases. Our division is the Immunization Services Division, and it's specifically focused on immunization, obviously, and uh, protecting individuals and communities from vaccine-preventable diseases. And so the division deals with a lot of different things, from purchasing vaccine to providing technical and financial support to immunization programs, doing education to providers and the public, and doing evaluation and research. Our branch really focuses on supporting the immunization information systems, otherwise known as IISs. IISs are confidential population-based systems where all immunization doses are recorded within jurisdictions. And because it's jurisdiction-based, it's a little bit different from some other programs within CDC where they may have a central repository or a central system that CDC controls. Everything with the IISs is, is done locally within jurisdictions. And so our branch supports those systems by facilitating development, implementation, uh, providing standards, um, doing evaluation, but 
we really are in a support role because we don't control the systems. So that's the very high level overview of kind of where we sit in CDC and what we do. Um, I don't know if, Lori, if you want to add anything. No, I, I think you did a great job. Thanks. All right. And for the, the listeners at home, do you guys want to give a, a high level picture of what your roles are uh, within the group? Sure. I'll start. So I am the informatics team lead in the branch. And the informatics team is focused on a lot of that standards work I mentioned. Um, so we are the ones that maintain our health level, level seven implementation guide um, to allow for the electronic exchange of data between providers and IISs or between IISs themselves. We also support code sets and vocabulary, which we'll be talking about later, 2D barcodes, clinical decision support for immunization. We support vaccine ordering and inventory, but we don't maintain that system per se. Um, so we really are kind of supporting the broad spectrum of standards that influence everywhere from you know where the shot is given all the way to getting into the IIS and then sometimes coming to CDC. And then I'll, I'll add, I am actually on Stuart's team. And when I first came to CDC and be, before COVID hit, uh, I was really specifically focused in on our supply chain systems and uh, working with the vaccine system we call VTRAX and basically working across 64 jurisdictions to help them with the ordering and inventory provider master data that we exchange between their local systems and CDC. And that's specifically to order routine vaccines and to report on uh, their inventory before they can order more. After COVID, um, that expanded quite drastically. And so that's where I also uh, expanded into code set work, as Stuart mentioned, we'll be talking more about. Also worked a little bit on the administration pieces that systems that we were working with throughout COVID. And so I've done just a little bit of everything throughout COVID. I bet. How many people are on the informatics team? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it changes so often. And we also have some public health informatics fellows. I think we're at nine? Um, does that sound right, Lori? I think we have like six FTEs, full-time employees, and then we have the three fellows. Yes. So we, we are actively trying to expand. So that's why the it's hard exactly. to track these days. <laughs> well, also we're reorganizing. And so our team is pretty much staying intact, but a couple of people on the team are moving to a new team that doesn't exist yet. So the number changes in my head based on, are we talking about soon or currently? So anyway, we're, we're somewhere around nine, I'd say right now. Lori told me offline that she's totally happy to work weekends. So that's just the only way to do it. <laughs> he, Charlie, he knows this. I... I... <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody knows it. I love it. <laughs> I think those of us in the data world and the healthcare, public health data world, you have to kind of love it. You it's do. Because, you, it, because of what it is, the speed and the, and the relevance of it. So here you were minding your own business, doing your work, and then COVID hits. And I would imagine COVID was a lot for all of us, for the entire nation, the entire world. But for you guys, my guess is that it had quite a bit of impact 
uh, and demand on what you were doing. Before we get into that, I mean, what was the kind of the cadence and the nature of what you guys did before COVID? It was a lot calmer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I, I can explain kind of where we started with our vocab code set project and where we were at um, before 2020 or maybe even into the very early months of 2020. So this project, which we call VCSMS, even though most people don't use that acronym because it's another one that does not flow very well, um, but it's, it's the, vo- it's the um, vaccine code set management service. And prior to 2016, we were maintaining all of these codes very much by hand. So we create the CVX and MVX at CDC, which are used to record vaccines. And then the NDC and CPT also exist out there to record vaccine administration, um, which are maintained by other entities, um, the NDC by FDA, CPT by the AMA. And prior to starting this project and using Cymedical, we would basically kind of source these codes as best we could. So there was no systematic way to pull in the codes from AMA or from FDA. We also weren't really using any sort of tooling that allowed us to standardize workflows or, you know, do any sort of data research, capture, and curation. And so we had an access database and we had one person who did a very great job of, you know, diligently going out there and looking to see when a new code was created, but there was nothing automated about it. And obviously it wasn't really sustainable and also, you know, could lead to data quality issues. So in 2016, um, the idea of shared services was being talked about within our division to try to reduce the burden on our stakeholders and like enhance the ability for them to get to data sources. So this seemed like a really good project to use pilot for shared services. So we um, were looking for something that would obviously do more than just an access database. So we really wanted a commercial off-the-shelf product that we knew had proven ability to manage codes and do these mappings. And so that's how we ended up um, using Cymedical. And we put out um, a contract to not only obtain and provision the software, but also to take everything that we had from this historical quote unquote database. (laughs) It was an access database, but it wasn't really very robust and move it into the tool and come up with a process to really be much more methodical and systematic in the way that we dealt with codes. I'm, I'm familiar with CVX and MVX because my long history at First Data Bank and Zinx and places like that. But for people that aren't super familiar or don't have it, something that intersects with that, can you briefly kind of explain how people utilize the CVX and MVX code systems? Yeah, so, so the CVX really kind of came about because it was being used when 
there were a lot of historical vaccines. So especially in the early days of these systems, when you might not have been recording things live. And so CVX gets to, it describes the vaccine in a a different way than like an NDC does. And so they kind of serve the same purpose ultimately because they identify the product. But CVX is a lot more flexible when you don't really know exactly what was given, but you just know they got a hep A vaccine, but you don't know anything else about it. And then it's paired with the MVX, which specifically describes the manufacturer. And so going forward, we're encouraging the use of NDC, but there are still a lot of systems that really live by the CVX because historically that's the way they've been recording things and that's what they use internally, even if they accept the NDC, you know, they might be mapping internally, but they still, many, many systems still really kind of live by that CVX. Is, is it fair to say that the CVX is essentially like a value set that rolls up NDC and, and immunization codes into kind of a, an immunization grouper? It's definitely a value set. It's not necessarily rolling the NDCs up. I mean, we do mapping, which we were doing again manually before, but now we're able to do this you know, much better using a tool that allows us to do these things. But it's really a list of codes, much like exactly like the NDC, describes things in a slightly different way and allows for that more generic code. And then we map to the NDC and to the CPT, which also describes you know more of an encounter in a clinical setting versus an actual product. But um, we know that many systems use that, especially for billing purposes. So we have to be able to kind of make all of those connections between the different codes because different systems are looking at a vaccine encounter in different ways. Okay, so, so that project, you know, started in 2016 and then, you know, from 2016 to 2019, it was really sort of getting everything into Cymatical and then going live. And we were fully live and transitioned by 2019, like early 2019. 2018 was really the transitional phase. 2017, we were kind of piloting to make sure this was actually going to work. By 2019, everything was in place. Our end users were using this. They had different ways to access the codes through web services and content cloud instead of just pulling them off of our website, which they can still do, but you know, it gave them a lot more options. So we were really kind of at the point in early 2020 where we were just looking at what's next. How can we refine this? And then COVID came along. Um, <laughs> it's your fault. You had to say what's next. <laughs> I mean, really, we were literally having those conversations. We were like, okay, you know, well, we can start thinking about some of these more wish list things. Um, we're in a great position. Should never say that. And I would say, you know, I came in uh, to CDC around 2018 and I spent the first part just trying to orient myself to the systems and what we were using and how you know different codes impacted all the different systems and specifically at the time looking at the uh, supply chain systems for ordering and one of the things that i was researching before covid really kicked off was the fact that we had a, a gap and some challenges in the inventory space 
due to the way we were tracking lot numbers. And I know we're going to touch on that a little bit later in the, the conversation, but um, there really was a lot of you know work happening before COVID that uh, helped to guide us as we got into COVID and, and really allowed us to work in ways we weren't able to do so before COVID, at least not as quickly as we had with the opportunities, I want to say, of COVID. I know people don't look at that as an opportunity, but or COVID as an opportunity, I should say. But we really did have some great uh, collaboration and opportunities that we were able to leverage during COVID to expand on what uh, Stuart had already put into place. Well, there's nothing like a crisis to increase your sense of urgency and put you in a room where you have to figure out how are we going to creatively deal with this because the normal course of business is not going to work. And I would imagine that during the early phases of the COVID crisis and as the, the new vaccine started to come out, you guys were probably asked to scramble quite a bit to figure out how to make things work. What's interesting in that in that aspect is, you know, we had a lot of the foundational pieces that we needed for the response. Um, we had an established ordering system, and you know, there were there were definitely some gaps that we had to work on. So I think what's really interesting, at least for me, is knowing that we had a lot of foundational pieces in place for COVID, and then it allowed us to, you know, quickly expand on those areas so that we could really, you know, tie everything together so that it came together as well as it did for reporting um, of products as COVID, you know, went out, we were quickly able to receive information back, which would not have happened outside of COVID. It's that's not what it looks like today in the routine vaccine space. So what were some of the challenges that you guys had to deal with? It sounds like you you had already kind of built out and planned out a solid foundation. And I remember those early days working with you guys and and we were very, uh, we're very grateful for the relationship that we at Clinical Architecture have with the CDC. It, not only has it been good to work with you guys, but you guys have pushed us in ways that made our products better, made our services better, and, and we really appreciate that. But when things were happening around that time, were there specific challenges that come to mind that you guys had to do something to address? If you want, Lori, you want to start? You want me to? <laughs> you can go first, and I'll jump in. How's that? Well, I would say the timing was probably the biggest challenge um, that we had across the board, and that included dealing with code sets because really immunizations tend to be pretty predictable in the sense that, you know, there's a long lead up time, clinical trials, and you know very well in advance when, you know, FDA is reviewing it. And then when ACIP is going to be voting on recommendations. And so we were very much in the habit of being kind of passive about it because we would wait until, you know, we knew that there was a new product out and you kind of knew well in advance. And so you didn't have to rush ever to get something out in general. And so I think the biggest challenge we faced at the beginning was just the speed of how everything was being approved because we were in the EUA space, um, the emergency use and so things moved much quicker. The time between a product going through clinical trials and getting to FDA and getting approved by ACIP was very much abbreviated. And so 
we definitely had challenges trying to figure out how to deal with that because we didn't have established relationships with a lot of these entities to know what was happening that far in advance because we never needed to. By the time ACIP voted, that's all we needed to know about beforehand. Um, But COVID kind of changed all that. Absolutely. And Charlie, I think you really touched on this at the beginning. You know, the partnerships were one of the most critical pieces of all of this. Knowing who to talk to and how to get everybody moving in the same direction was really the key to success in everything that we've accomplished with COVID. You know, the timing of things, as Stuart said, you know, before COVID is, you know, we were waiting until it was approved and then it could be anywhere from four to six weeks before CDC and other data partners, such as AMA or drug compendiums like First Data Bank, would actually publish their information. And then we know that outside of COVID, once the publications are posted, it could take anywhere from six weeks, if not longer, for our EHR vendors and other system vendors to actually pick those codes up. And when we're talking COVID and and really accelerating the timeline, the key to success for it was as soon as the product was authorized, it would ship. And as soon as it arrived, we had the expectation of providers administering shots in arms right away. And based on the way we were doing business before COVID, that whole process wasn't going to be suitable for what we needed for COVID. So we did have to change our our timelines and expand our partnerships. And, you know, we, we really could not have done it without the manufacturers. We partnered with them in ways we had not done before. Um, We had partnered with other federal agencies in ways we had never done before. And we learned a lot that we did not know about, I think, before a product actually gets approved by the FDA. So it's been very educational along the way. In addition to that, we had a, a working relationship with AMA, but not as extensive as what was required for us to do code set publications that we had during COVID and at the rate that we were asked to produce them. And we also had to expand more into the drug file or the formulary compendium space. So um, we had just started working with First Data Bank, and then we had to rapidly expand into some of the other compendiums. And really, in my mind, these guys did such an amazing job of coming together to support the rapid development and publication of all of the codes and variations that we've seen throughout this last few years. And then we've also been working very closely with the National Council for Prescription Drug Program, NCPDP, who also oversees the compendiums to help us maintain that one standard. And then other partners, and again, I can't, I have to like really promote all these partners because it was really all of these people coming together that made this a success. And we had existing relationships with our immunization information or IIS vendors, but there were other ones out there that we really didn't have a a working relationship with. And so we had to establish new partnerships with the Electronic Health Record Association or EHRA uh, vendors. And it was amazing to watch all of those EHR vendors come together and talk about where their challenges were so we could learn from that and help to remove as many roadblocks as we could in order to achieve, you know, rapid delivery and administration in arms. And also with data exchange vendors, 
essentially it covers every aspect of from end to end of the interoperability data exchange process that one can imagine. Not to mention, you know, all of the jurisdictions we worked with, 64 in total. We also had some new provider partners that came to the table to work with us that were administering. And, and that includes, you know, federal agencies, national commercial partners, such as pharmacies and dialysis. And then one that we really hadn't put at the beginning, but we did as we moved along COVID, um, were our payer partners. And really, it took all of these guys to make this work. Uh, it's really amazing when you take a step back to understand how it works from end to end. But if any one of these guys would have been missing, we wouldn't have been able to achieve, I think, what we did in such a rapid time. It's encouraging when something like this happens and people roll up their sleeves and, and get to work. And healthcare, that sometimes gets a bad rap because the healthcare system in this country, and, and frankly, in every country I've ever intersected with, they all have their issues because of the nature of what they're doing and how they're doing it. But when something like this happens, you can tell that people are very earnest about wanting to do something that helps people. And we, we try to do a number of things during the process because we felt a little bit on the sidelines of clinical architecture because we have all these partners that are providers and folks like you guys and payers and as a vendor that build systems you know we really didn't feel like we could have a direct impact to help what was happening with covid and so we did a couple of things like the covid 19 interoperability alliance where we were building value sets with folks and then of course you know the work that we did with you guys we felt was very important but yeah it's it's very encouraging and amazing when you think about everything that people did to help us get through that process, get through that crisis. And I think we learned a lot in the process too, as a, as a industry, as a, as a nation. Absolutely. So one of the things that, you know, we have on our talking points here, and this is really for people that aren't super aware of uh, some of these concepts, but would you mind talking a little bit about lot numbers? Because when the, when the new vaccines were coming out and, they're trying to get them administered. I've even had friends of mine, we would talk about some of the work we we're doing. They said, well, why is that a big deal? What's so important about the lot numbers? Would you mind giving a primer on lot numbers? Lori, I think you're probably the best one to do that. Okay. So sure. Yeah. You know, I think before we dive into lot numbers, I think where we should start is the NDC. I think most people, you know, feel like NDC is one of the most important pieces of the vaccine-related codes, and it, it truly is critical, but that lot number kind of goes out of sight, out of mind when people don't see it or, or talk about it a lot. The way uh, the labeling works is you've got a carton or an outer package, and then you've got a, a label that goes on the actual syringe or the vial, and we call that the inner, inner package or the um, unit of use is the inner package, and the outer package is unit of sale. You can have a lot number that is supporting your unit of sale, and you can have a lot number that supports your unit of use. Hopefully that's not too complicated. <laughs> Essentially what happens when you, when you take a step back from the labels is you have to think about how the systems are using each of those numbers. And what we see are the supply chain systems are dependent on the NDC, the unit of sale NDC and the unit of sale lot number. Whereas our administration systems are basically dependent on the unit of use. And so when I'm going to order a vaccine, I am usually ordering from 
the unit of sale vaccine-related codes. When I receive those, depending on which system I'm using to track and how I'm tracking, I'm usually just tracking the outer carton information, that unit of sale. When my patient comes in for an appointment and I administer it through, I pull the information off of the vial or that syringe. And that's what I'm putting into my EHR. One of the things we've noticed even before COVID was that some of our manufacturers would use the same standard for the lot number on both packagings, outer and inner. And then we had uh, manufacturers that would change it. And so there essentially wasn't a standard out there to really get one standard way of doing it. The other thing we knew is we had gaps. We didn't have crosswalks, essentially, that gave us an NDC for unit of sale and a lot number for unit of sale. And we didn't have, uh, on the same table, essentially, we didn't have that corresponding inner packaging labeling tied to it. So for systems, they could not connect the dots between uh, the unit of use and unit of sale uh, lot numbers. It becomes really important, again, in, in terms of when you're trying to tie systems together, make them interoperable. In each individual setting, the system can operate with its own specific code needs. But when we don't have crosswalks and we don't have a way of reconciling that, we have challenges when it comes to decrementing inventory, meaning it can't automatically reduce the number of doses as they're administered. And that has to be manually accounted for. And, and sometimes it's, it's really hard to do, especially if someone is not using the 2D barcode scanning functionality where it's getting us our highest data quality. If I am a provider in clinic and I don't have 2D barcoding and I just manually key in that lot number from the vial or the syringe, there's a lot of room for errors in that space. And so when we try to tie all of those together, you know, it can be quite complicated. And what we found before COVID and even more so in COVID is that we needed a solution that would allow us to have a crosswalk so that we could, we could reference the uh the lot numbers so that the lot number is actually tying it back to when it was manufactured so that there are any problems or expiration information that lot number groups all the ndcs that were produced in that lot together is that fair that is fair absolutely and it becomes one of the most critical pieces especially if there's a recall and you need to pull a batch back not having the ability to do that is essentially what we are up against. I, I normally have visuals to show this so I can I step people through it. So it's so hard to do it here. Uh, I see it in my mind, but trying to explain it without those visuals is so challenging. I know. I mean, I know that I am a um, already knowledgeable audience, but I think you did a great job of explaining it. It makes, <laughs> yeah. makes sense. So... And if anybody listening to the podcast wants to get a visual primer, just let us know. We'll, exactly. We'll, we'll, we can we can definitely do that. <laughs> the, the bottom line is when you guys were faced with moving all these vaccines around the country, being able to track what's being administered where, when those vaccines lose viability, those ties between the outer pack identifier, the, the identifier on the vial itself, and what actual batch, when it was produced and who produced it, was obviously very important for you to be able to know what's going on from a, from a supply chain perspective. 
Exactly. And you know, the, the thing about COVID too, that was even more challenging in this space is that we had non-standard labels that we were up against. The EUA labels were not the same as what um, we would see under the BLA or uh, biological license application. And so because this product was coming out and we didn't have all the stability data on it, some of them did not have even expiration numbers on them. And it made it harder for people to track that information, especially when they're administering and trying to log it into their EHR. And so, you know, COVID, COVID even put more challenges on us than we initially had to, that we initially have to do with, with the routine vaccines. Well, I remember being in a call with you guys and we were talking about the lot numbers and the challenge that you guys were having getting the data from the manufacturers. And we kind of said, well, you know, we'd like to help you with that. Us being able to help wrangle the lot numbers from the manufacturers and get them all kind of normalized and together so they could be delivered to a place where they could be put to use is something that, you know, we as an organization are very proud to have been a part of. And we appreciated you guys letting us contribute to that effort. Well, you guys have just been amazing. I mean, ideally it was a proof of concept with, we knew that there were gaps with lot numbers and we knew that the, where the technical challenges existed, but finding a solution that we could put into place at such a rapid turnaround time and make it available to people that need it, you know, was such an amazing accomplishment. So again, another another key partnership out there where we've we've really made improvements in public health. Well, it was uh, a lot of people did a lot of really good work to make it all happen, but uh, we're, we're super proud to be a part of it. So now that we are where we are, I mean, how would you characterize where we are today relative to pre-COVID? Do you feel like we're in a good place? Do you feel like the systems, the foundations are all pretty solid? Stuart, I'll, I'll take the first stab here and then I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. Does that sound fair? Sure. sure. You know, I, I think over the course of COVID, we've really made significant advances to the entire ecosystem. The partners continue to meet routinely. Everyone is engaging on ways to improve. And, you know, a lot of the things we've stood up were either proof of concepts or pilots. Those things are, are really, you know, having a significant impact uh, even today. And so, you know, as we continue to move forward, I, I, I think that, you know, we'll continue to expand on a, a lot of the new, new areas that were established under COVID. And I think, we, you know, we've also, these relationships we've put into place, I don't see those going away. We're, you know, building on those is key. You can't do any of this without having all the partners at the table. And now that we know what it takes to make this work, you know, I think we only have, it's, it's only going to get better. And we're already seeing improvements in data quality because of these activities, which is essentially why we've focused and, and worked so hard on the terminology side and, and making sure that everybody's readying systems in advance and then monitoring the data as it comes in and working with these partners to continue their improvements. Stuart, I'll turn yeah. it over to you. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with all of that. I mean, I, I think the learning experience alone was invaluable because we thought we understood the process pretty well, but COVID and that accelerated process really kind of forced us to dig in deeper and really understand 
how a product gets from clinical trials all the way to distribution and into an arm. So that in and of itself was really helpful for us to, to understand, you know, not just for the code sets, but across the board, everything that we do. And then that really came about because of the partnerships. And like Lori said, those partnerships are not going to go away. If anything, they're going to be strengthened. And it's really helpful now to be able to talk with these groups who know about the vaccine a lot of times well before we do, um, just so we know what's on the horizon and we can really try to work out issues well in advance so something doesn't get approved and come to market. And then we have to scramble to figure out because there's some thing that we'd never encountered before with it or, you know, however, whatever may happen. And then I think also the lot number work going to hopefully expand. Like I know we've, we were toying with the idea of, you know, we did this work with COVID, but how do we leverage this work and expand the scope to look at routine vaccines as well, which obviously will take a lot more resources and time. And it's a lot, well, not that COVID was predictable, but COVID was only predictable in that we would know about things very quickly. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a great opportunity to, to start considering that and see what we can do. Can I ask you guys, guys an informatics nerd question? I'm the informatics nerd in this scenario, by the way. Um, does the nature of the new vaccines, the, the mRNA vaccines, does it change how you model the CVX codes from an information perspective? It can. If the formulation changes, we do have to go back and reevaluate whether new codes are needed or not. So there are, are several different aspects that we look at in terms of modeling a vaccine code that you know come into play as as each new presentation comes up. Yeah, I think it forced us to dive even deeper into that very non-informatics world of formulation and truly trying to understand what the difference was between these products because the mRNA vaccines are so very similar, hence why they can be used interchangeably that in a non-COVID world, we probably would have considered them the same vaccine ultimately, you know, and so it was very difficult for us to tease out exactly what the difference was. So when we were creating that CVX, we had something that made it different from the other product. Thankfully, we do have people like Lori who are pharmacists who can understand that sort of thing because it really has gotten a lot more into that world than we ever had to think about previously. Yeah, those pharmacists come in handy, and I'm not just saying that because of all my friends at First Data Bank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that's interesting, um, and this is just from the flip side, because you guys were dealing with this problem from the perspective of vaccines and distribution of them. One of the weird things that we also saw, not necessarily weird, but when we were working with the providers and the labs and the folks on the other side of COVID testing, one of the things that really blindsided the industry was the fact that they didn't have a common vocabulary for talking about COVID screening tests. And so one of the big challenges, and I brought this up at a high-tech meeting, is we need to have a 
a group somewhere that when there is some kind of emerging crisis like COVID, we should sit down and decide what are the semantics that we're going to use to describe this. Because at one point when we were working with different clients, there were 72 different ways to say the patient was positive for COVID. When you think about mapping results, lab results, the way that people characterized COVID, whether it was SARS, whether it was, you know, coronavirus, however they were doing it, that was another another facet of COVID and how it kind of blindsided the industry a little bit. And it took a lot of time for people to kind of figure out just the nomenclature of how do we describe and how do we talk about the test results in a way where they're somewhat compatible because we obviously really care about from a public health perspective to be able to monitor that and see who's positive and who's not. So that was another another aspect of this that I thought was interesting to see how the industry responded and dealt with that. Yeah, and we definitely see that even with the non-COVID world, um, especially with clinical decision support, when we're trying to give a code to an underlying condition that might affect whether you vaccinate or not vaccinate. And there are different ways to describe the same condition. And when it's done in a narrative form and not in any sort of structured code form, it's very easy to use terms interchangeably. But when you're actually trying to code it, you start realizing, wait, is this the same condition? Do you actually mean these to be the same thing or are they different things? So um, we've definitely encountered that a lot even before COVID. Well, and that's one of those things that I think COVID as a phenomenon opened up a lot of people's eyes. We're seeing it now in the, in the wake of COVID. We are seeing a lot of people that are starting to say, yeah, we didn't realize how unusable our data was. And, and why data quality, which for a lot of a lot of these folks out in in the provider space and other spaces, we use it for billing, we use it for certain types of tracking and management. We try to use it for quality measures. But you know, one of the things that was I'm sure very frustrating for a lot of people was how do how do we do a better job of predicting who is gonna who is really gonna get hit hard by COVID and who is not? You know, it's one thing to say that somebody is you know, uh, elderly and it has multiple comorbidities, but why is somebody who's 30 years old and relatively healthy having this problem? And I think that one of the things that I hope happens as a result of COVID is that healthcare as an industry starts to ramp up the quality of their discrete patient data so that when things like this happen, we can actually look to the data and see what's going on and do a better job of of making decisions based upon that data. So we don't have things like locked up in narratives and things that are being coded in incorrectly. I'm optimistic that it was a little bit of a wake up call for us from a data quality perspective, but I am a, a data quality zealot, so. I do think that the key to all of this is planning ahead for these types of things. You know, as we mentioned in the beginning that we had a lot of the foundational pieces in, in place, but Definitely taking a step back and looking at all the lessons learned are key as we move forward. And also, you know, talking about some of the gaps that still exist outside of, you know, what we've established for COVID, even in routine vaccine world is going to be important. But I think that, you know, what I can't say enough is just what an amazing historic effort that we've actually accomplished here with vaccines alone. And I think that that will help us to inform a lot of other areas as we continue to make progress 
in future pandemic planning exercises. Yeah, got to have standards. Absolutely. And like you said, I think that it's amazing what we can do as an industry when we roll up our sleeves and we work together towards a common goal. So uh, hopefully we started a trend in that respect with the things that happened during the pandemic. So what do you guys see as the future for the program? So for our branch or for the vocab work in particular? For both. Let's start small and go bigger. So for the, the vocab work that you're doing, where do you see yourself going from here? So I, I think, um, like I said earlier, I'm definitely thinking about how we can grow the lot number work because it's been so helpful with COVID, you know, trying to figure out what we can do in the routine vaccine space. I think also leveraging all of these relationships and coming up with some ways to standardize our interactions. Right now, it really is keyed off of what's going on with COVID. But I think now in a less COVID-centric world, we need to kind of come up with cadences and ways to engage with manufacturers especially because we don't necessarily know what their timelines are or when their new products that might be in clinical trial or, or whatever. So I think just growing all of those pieces that cropped up in COVID and using them to make our routine vaccine work better. For the branch, kind of what I was alluding to earlier, we're growing a lot. We're adding three new teams, really. Two of them are kind of pieces of an existing team, but that's again a result of all the work that we did with COVID recognizing that we've taken on a lot of new initiatives that we never did before within the branch, but are very important and proven to be very useful, but we need the resources to support all of that. So, so yeah, I mean, really COVID has been an opportunity for better or worse, but in this case for better to really expand our scope and to grow everything that we've been doing in the branch and take all the work that we did pre-COVID and take it to the next level. And I, I just add that, you know, we're still collecting lessons learned. I feel like we have a lot that we've learned from our side, but also just having listening sessions with partners and really hearing more about their lessons learned it will ensure success in the future. As Stuart said, you know, we've got, we've, we plan on uh, looking at ways to expand some of the projects like the, like the lot number project. But that also means expanding more into manufacturers and, and really getting people to understand why we need information in advance uh, and not after something's been approved. So a lot of strong communications and partnerships uh, that we have to keep focusing on as we move forward. I would think there's also a message in there about, you said it earlier, Lori, about standards. Having a standard way of doing things streamlines our ability to move information when we have to in a hurry, as opposed to everybody kind of creating their own one-off thing and then giving it to other folks and having them kind of work through it and normalize it. When these things happen, it's usually a good opportunity to say, okay, how can we create a standard thing so when this type of thing happens again, it's normal course of business and not a mad scramble? Is that something that you guys are working with the manufacturers on as far? I know we did some of that 
with the COVID vaccines, but is that something you think will expand? I believe it will. Making sure the standards are, you know, well communicated, published. You know, if there's a challenge with them, making sure we understand what that is and and if there's ways around it. Also, just trying to optimize implementation. So, if there's something that hasn't been adopted yet, we're really trying to encourage people. Like, for instance, 2D barcoding. If you're not using it. You should be. It's a gold standard. And so, you know, really trying to encourage across the nation for people to optimize all their systems and tools in addition to adopting those standards is important at this point. And 2D barcoding has been around a while, if I remember correctly. It has, but, um, you know, in a situation like COVID where you don't have standard labels and we didn't, we unfortunately, we did not have 2D barcoding available to us during COVID, it became a, a challenge. Even as we sit down with partners there, we learned that they were they were still not uh, implementing some of these tools or they hadn't completely rolled them out. And so I, I believe people now see the value there, but it's really our responsibility to keep, you know, communicating the importance and, and to publish, you know, how important it is, you know, making sure that everybody understands the, how critical it is to the success of the overarching country. I mean, it's, it really does help us when we're trying to exchange all the data that we're exchanging and making sure it's at the highest quality that it can be. Anything else you guys would like to add before we wrap up today? Charlie, I would just want to say thank you for hosting this. And again, if anybody needs a visual, I'm much better with visuals. This is the first time I've tried a podcast, but uh, very excited that we had the opportunity to do this. So thank you and uh, to your team. Yeah, thank you as well. We've enjoyed working with you over, I guess it's now six years. And it was really great to have this opportunity to talk about everything that we did during that time and then how much it changed, shockingly, during COVID. Well, and you guys uh, gave a lot of kudos to a lot of folks out there. Let me take this opportunity to give you kudos. I don't know that people realize how much work you guys did and how much of a difference it made in, in us as a country doing a better job of making sure people were getting vaccinated and getting the help that they need. And so I would say thank you for everything that you did and continue to do to help keep people safe out there. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the InfraMonster podcast with Stuart Meyerberg and Lori Moore from the CDC. And I'm Charlie Arp, your host, and I'll see you all in the next InfraMonster podcast.